So there's this natural human quest for better. To be better at who we are. To be better at what we do. In fact, if you uh, just start to type into Google with their autocomplete feature, how can I be? There are lots of things that come up as the autocomplete options. Things like how can I be happy? How can I be sure? How can I be pretty? But right at the top of that list is how can I be better? There are certain times in our lives when that question seems to be at the forefront of our mind a little bit more than others. And I was thinking about this yesterday. Yesterday, um, um, my family had the privilege of participating in a walk that is geared towards curing diabetes. And um, we got invited a couple of years ago. I was thinking about it a couple of years ago by family in our church. The Yorks were Addie York was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and they were building a team together to go walk for Addie, Team Addie. And so we did that, and most of you know, but some of you don't, that I am also type 1 diabetic. And so it was the first time I'd ever done something like that. I just, uh, I've just i been living with diabetes for um, 28 years and just had never been a part of that. And so I went a couple of years ago, and I was standing out in the crowd while they were doing all the introductions and all that was happening and all that was going on. And while they're doing all of that, they start talking about the complications that come along with diabetes. And I realized pretty quickly that I should be in worse shape than I am. Have you ever had that? Like when you, you'll hear things like when you turn 40, things like this are going to happen or 30. And like, they were like, if you've had diabetes for more than 10 years, you may be experiencing this. And I was like, wow, I really should not feel as good as I feel um, doing this. And so I also had just like a wake up call, like, you know what, I probably ought to think about my health long term a little bit. And so I started trying to make some changes and do some things. And part of that was when I turned 39, so birthday and a half ago, when I turned 39 years old, I asked for and received as my birthday present. I'm a technology guy. And so I got this, a Fitbit monitor, right? A Fitbit monitor, put on your arm, you wear it throughout the day. It is basically a glorified pedometer. It measures steps. That's its major metric. You can see there, whoever this is, has walked 8,151 steps. And so you walk through all that, and you put it on, and you start walking. And so I did that, put it on my wrist, wearing it every day, syncing it to my phone, looking at all this stuff. In fact, got into competitions with people in this church who would, you know, you put on there, I want to share my activity with them, and they share back and forth. And as you're sharing back and forth, you see who's ahead for the week and all that. And for some reason, foolishly, I decided to compete with guys that run like 5Ks every day. And so they would be like way out there. But my goal and the normal goal for normal people who aren't nuts and run all the time is 10,000 steps a day. And so every day you'd look down at your watch and it'd just come straight up or your Fitbit and say, all right, you got 10, you know, these are your steps. And many times at night, I would sit down, everybody's kind of gone to bed, and I would look at my Fitbit, and it would say I was at 9,720. And I'd think, well, I can't, I gotta get 10,000. And so I would literally get up and walk in circles around my house to get 10,000 steps, because that's a magic number. Like, if you're at 9,720, unhealthy. 10,000, completely healthy. Like, I gotta get there. And so I would get there, and I would sit and go, whoo! I've done my work today. I am health. I am on my way, path to healthiness, right? For my 40th birthday, I decided that the Fitbit was no longer good enough for my needs, right? And I was turning 40, and so I asked for, and my 40th, my 40th birthday present 
was my Apple Watch. And so I went to this. Right, I wear an Apple Watch on right now. I can tell you how many steps I have and all that right now. I won't go through that, but you can look at it. And they do things differently. They've got a move and an exercise and a stand. And if you've had an Apple Watch, I've heard people talk about you try to complete your rings every day and it becomes a little bit of an obsession and all of that. But they don't focus on steps. You know, there's no steps here. And so to find your steps, you have to kind of go down into it a little bit. And I thought after wearing it for two or three days, man, I really have been doing some stuff. I've been, I'm confident I'm going to get my 10,000 steps every day. I'm doing great. I've been working, trying to get it out. And I opened it up and it said I was averaging 6,500 steps a day. And I was like, what in the world? I've been doing more than I was doing to get 10,000 with the Fitbit. And so I started to do some research. Like, why is my Apple Watch not working? That's what I wanted to find out. And what I discovered is the Apple Watch was more accurate for me than the Fitbit. Because here's the reason. The Fitbit has some pretty, it has decent sensors, but it's on your arm. And if you are a person that talks with your hands... Can I get an amen in the house? If you talk, I mean, I, I, like, I can't talk like this. I just, it's hard, right? If you talk with your hands, then you are going to get credit on your Fitbit for steps. And I talk a lot with my hands. And so I was getting a couple of thousand steps. Or I found out if you're rolling slowly in the car, it will give you steps. Or, and we're not going to name any names, but we thought that some of the people we were competing with, if you put it on your children and let them walk around, (laughs) it will give you steps, Katie Jackson. So that's not, we're just saying, you know, Ben and Izzy earned a lot of miles for them. So we're not, you know, so it was, suddenly I'm like, man, I'm not, I'm not doing as well as I thought. Because what I was using to measure my progress was wrong. Sometimes what we're using to measure whether we're getting better or not is wrong. Sometimes we don't even know what it is we're supposed to do to get better. So in that same time, I thought about losing some weight or thinking about taking some pounds off and doing that. And so you looked into all the stuff. And when I was growing up, the way that you lost weight, the diets that you went on was all low fat, no fat, fat free. Okay. So, like, it's interesting. My, my mom did a cookbook for us when we got married. That's been almost 20 years ago. And almost everything in there is used low-fat uh, sour cream, no-fat cream cheese, low-fat this, no-fat that. Like, everything is low-fat, no-fat. I mean, like, they had no-fat butter. Do you realize there is no purpose to no-fat butter? Right? I mean, there's that thing called I can't believe it's not butter, and I can because I've tasted it, and it's not butter. Like... Like people like have that, right? Or, or, you know, like skim milk, what we call around here white water. I mean, you might as well take some water, put some food coloring in it, and call it milk, all right? Like everything was no-cow, low-cow, fat-wise. Well, then about 10 years ago, it became, no, 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 no. You can eat fat. Just don't eat carbs, right? So just don't eat any breads. No, no breads at all. You, you can eat, like, in fact, there was, my favorite diet of all times is the Atkins diet. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today? You know why? Because go out, eat a steak. Big old steak, just don't eat the potato, right? Go to McDonald's, get you a double quarter pounder, just tell them to leave off the bun. Like everything was, you, you, you do that. Then came along the diet, the caveman diet. Just eat what cavemen ate, right? And, and I, I just want to tell those people, if you're a paleo caveman diet person, God help you, all right? Bless you. 
I mean, bless you. God bless you is what I meant. But you realize that life expectancy is like twice now what it was then. All right? Just making sure we're clear on that. But you know, you understand what I mean. Like, eggs were terrible for you. Never eat an egg. Now you hear, eat an egg every morning. It's good for you. Don't drink coffee. It'll kill you. Drink coffee and you'll never die. Like, every time a new study comes out, like, what am I supposed to be doing? The problem also happens that sometimes we don't know the standards we're supposed to do. Sometimes we're not sure what we're supposed to do to get better. But then there's also the thing that even when we know what we should be doing, we don't always do it. Like we know. Can I tell you the secret of a good diet? I'm going to break this unbelievable news here for you. Right? Here's the secret. You eat fewer calories than you exert in a day. It's unbelievable. And it works. That's the diet that works. And so we know that, and we're trying to watch what you eat. We're going to be good about it, or we're going to start exercising, or we're going to do take care of ourselves. And we're driving down Rivergate Parkway, and we see this. And we say to the Lord, Lord, I've been really good. I mean, I, I did not eat that Twinkie this morning. Like, I've been great for three hours. And here's the thing, Lord, I'm not going to do this if you don't want me to. And so if there's a parking spot at the front of the store open, I'm going to take that as a sign that it's okay for me to go get a Krispy Kreme donut. Or if nobody is in the drive-thru, I'm going to take that as a sign. And so you go, Lord, it's amazing. On my sixth trip around the store, that front parking spot opened. It's amazing. And I went to the drive-thru, and I know there were two people there, but it was the fastest worker. And it's like nobody when she's there just gets you through, right? And we don't do what we know we're supposed to do. We, we don't know how to get better because we have the wrong measurements, or we don't know what we should be doing, or we get in the way. But here's the thing. The Bible does tell us about what it takes to be better. And it really isn't about what you have to do. It's about what's already been done. If you've got a Bible with you or somebody around you has got a Bible with you, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. It's towards the end of the Bible. If you want to, you can go to Revelation and then just back up about three or four books and it's right there, Hebrews. Okay? It's the coffee book in the Bible. It's Hebrews. Listen, I'm a pastor. I've got to throw in a bad joke every now and then. We're going to ask, what does the Bible say about better? And here, here's a verse. You're going to turn to Hebrews 1, but I want to read you a verse that really kind of impacted the way we're thinking about this and why we're in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9 says, and this is to a group of people, and we're going to talk about this, who these people are, but they were thinking about giving up. They were like me at the time yesterday of 21 to nothing. They were thinking of turning the TV off and walking away, but this time not from a football game that doesn't really matter, but about their commitment to Jesus, which really does. And the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who it is, says, we are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. What he says to them is, listen, I know you've had a very difficult time. I know it's been a hard time for you, but we are confident that better things are ahead. We are confident that things are coming that are better. The whole theme of the book of Hebrews is that better things 
are coming. In fact, the theme of the whole book of Hebrews is, and this will be a main point in a few minutes, but that Jesus is better than anything else you can have. This is a letter, the book of Hebrews, a letter written to a church, a church that was struggling through some real difficult times. It was filled with a group of people that were Jewish Christians, had abandoned their Jewish faith, their Jewish friends, their Jewish brethren, and had come to follow Jesus. And immediately upon following Jesus, instead of life getting better here on this earth right now, things got worse pretty quickly. Some of them were facing severe persecution. Some of them had loved ones that were suffering because of their decision. Some of them had friends that were departing them. Some of them had friends who said they were going to go with them and decided not to join and follow Jesus. There were the normal temptations of living in Rome where they lived, the epicenter of the world, with every temptation that we have today, they had around them. And then there was the whole thing of new things they had to believe. This whole thing about Jesus, who many of them had not seen in the flesh They were told what he taught. Like us, they had to believe by faith that he had risen from the grave. And they were like, wait wait a minute. I thought when we followed Jesus, I thought when we started going to church, I thought when I lived my life for the Lord, things would get better. And they didn't necessarily get better. This is a little aside, and it's kind of strange to do this in a sermon where you're going to talk about better. But just to let you know, Following Christ doesn't mean that our lives will immediately on this earth look like they're getting better. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the life of Moses. And even if you're not one that grew up in church, you kind of know the life of Moses. It's been in movies. Moses was a guy that grew up in... um, in Egypt, as a prince of Egypt, grew up in that area, was given privilege in the greatest nation in the world at that time. At 40, because someone was mistreating a Hebrew from which he had come, he killed an Egyptian. Was banished to the wilderness for 40 years. In the wilderness after 40 years, he's out there tending sheep, the lowest job you could have in that society. At 80 years old, he's tending sheep and a bush is on fire and it's not burning up. And he says, I think I ought to go to see what's happening. And as he goes over there, the Lord begins to speak to him and says, I'm going to send you to go get my people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And he says, wait a minute, who am I? I'm not worthy of this. And God says, don't worry, I'll be with you. And he says, who are you? And he says, my name is Yahweh. And he goes, well, what do I tell them you want me to say? And he says, just tell them that I'm going to come get them. And some of them will believe you. Pharaoh will not, but that's okay. And he says, Moses says, I can't do, I can't talk. Like, like, I'm not good at talking. I, I can't do public stuff. And God says, don't worry, I'll give you the words. And finally, Moses says, just send somebody else. And God says, no, I'm sending you. And so Moses goes back and he walks in to the palace of Pharaoh. And he walks into a place where he had been banished for 40 years. Walks up to the leader of the greatest nation in the world. And he says, those million and a half, two million people that you've got working for no charge to build all of your great structures that you don't have to pay anything to, I need you to let them all go free for us to leave. And Pharaoh says, what? He says, Yahweh told me to come tell you. They go, who, who's Yahweh? He goes, I don't know who Yahweh is. Why would I listen to him anyways? No, I'm not letting them go. And then he says, in fact, because you asked that, I'm going to make it worse on them. And they've been having to build bricks out of straw. I don't even begin to know how to do that. But now we're not going to give them the straw. They got to go find the straw and they got to make the same number of bricks every day that they've already been required to make. And the leaders of the Israelites come to Moses and goes, what are you doing? We didn't ask for this. You just made our life worse. In fact, the words they say is you made us stink before Pharaoh. 
And Moses goes to the Lord and says, I thought this was supposed to be better. I thought that when I followed you, everything would get better immediately. But it doesn't always happen that way. Some of you know what that's like, if you're honest. You struggle with your faith. You thought you'd accept Jesus, or you'd try church, or you'd try Christianity, and everything would be perfect and good, peaceful, loving, great life. Mr. Right has never come along, or Mr. Right turned into Mr. Wrong. Your job got worse instead of better. Your family is not responding the way you thought it would be. And you thought you'd wake up every morning singing worship songs beside your bed with birds floating by. Like some Disney princess movie, but it's just not happening. Temptations are more tempting, not less. Harder to walk with God than you ever imagined. And that's exactly the kind of person that the book of Hebrews is written to. The basic message of Hebrews is simply don't give up. Christ is better. Go all the way with him. And faith is the word that dominates the whole book. Faith is believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. Now, here's the deal. I talked about my giving up on the Tennessee game yesterday. Can I just tell you this? If you stuck with that Tennessee game, it did not make sense for you to do that. Right? You say, well, yeah, they came back. It makes sense now. It did not make sense at halftime. Because we had a history of 11 straight years of it turning out poorly and not coming back in that kind of game. The reality is the wisest decision at that moment was to say, I'm done. Now it looks foolish to think you're done. But in the moment... Those of you that stuck with it, in the first service I said this, and somebody goes, I stayed. I was like, good for you. I'm glad you did. Because it means you believed in advance what only makes sense in reverse. And for some of you in your life, it is hard and difficult, and you feel like giving up right now, and you are called by God to keep going, to not quit. And it will only make sense in reverse. And that's who he's writing to. Now, I want to tell you that the book of Hebrews is hard. And if you want to go home and read it, it's not an easy book to read. But inside of it is such good stuff. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And here's what you want to see, all right? He starts his whole book by saying, don't leave. Because Christ is better than anything else you could have. Verse 1 says, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. Just think about all the ways God spoke in the Old Testament. If you've grown up hearing about the Old Testament or you know about it, there are all kinds of ways God speaks in the Old Testament. He talks through dreams and visions. He delivers people through fire and through clouds. He gives messages through angels. He speaks in audible voices or through the whispers of whirlwinds. He wrote on walls. He appeared in burning bushes. He inspired people to write worship songs. He put messages in the mouths of donkeys. He even inspired a love poem book that talks about the most intimate relationship between a man and a woman. It says in the past he used all these methods to speak to us. But in these last days. What we have to understand is the last days here, in the Hebrew mind, they had three different eras. They had creation in the fall, the nation of Israel where God built a people, developed a people for himself, and then the Messiah would come and usher a new era. In these days, in the new era, in the final era, he has spoken to us by his 
Son. Literally, it means He has spoken in Son. That's not a great English translation, but what it means is that the previous prophets talked about the Word of God. Jesus is God. The previous prophets talked about God. Jesus is God. He's the perfect embodiment of the Father. And then he says this. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. He's appointed him heir of all things. It's just like when a dad is getting his son ready for um, something he's going to pass down to him. He's preparing an estate for his son, for oh, only son, the only child he has. And it's a wealthy estate. He's going to get everything in order. He's going to get everything together. He's going to get everything to his son. That's what God did. He created the world and everything that the world created was done for Jesus. The prophets were all pointing to something and not what they're pointing to is that Jesus is the one who was to come. He's the point of the whole Old Testament. He's the point of the new. And then it says there that he made the universe through him, that God created the universe through Jesus. He created and he upholds everything we know that exists anywhere in the universe. The other day I was reading about our solar system, all right? However that is, from the sun to the last planet. Anybody know what the last planet is now? It used to be Pluto, now it's Neptune, but now they've discovered another thing that may be another place that may be a planet. Have you heard about this? There's a secret planet that we didn't know about, right? Been hiding out from us for years, which shows you the depth of our knowledge of our own solar system when we can't even figure out what a planet is, all right? So there are planets out there. From the sun to the edge of our universe is 7.5 billion miles. So if you decided, you know what, I'm just going to drop that. Okay, don't get all worked up about what that means. You started driving at 65 miles an hour to get across our solar system. It would take you 13,172 years or 338 lifetimes. That's our solar system. Astronomers say there are over 100 billion solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy alone and over 50 billion galaxies in the universe. And Jesus created all of that. And we get excited when we build your own back deck. Right? Well, I built a company from the ground up. Jesus created and holds it all in his hand. Then it says this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Yesterday, I mentioned the walk because we did the walk again yesterday. And yesterday, um, I don't know whether you realize this or not, but it's a little warm outside, right? It's almost October and it feels like July, okay? And so yesterday, we're getting ready for the walk. And as you get ready for the walk, they want to bring everybody together and talk about advancements and talk about all that stuff I talked about earlier. And they do that. We're standing there with 3,000 people in an open field with no shade and the sun is absolutely beating down on our heads. Hot. You think about how far away that thing is. There was a show recently I streamed from one of the nerd channels that I watch every once in a while. 
And instead of the core of the sun, it is such a high pressure environment that when the atoms collide together, they fuse and it emits light and heat. And the powerful interaction is so big that we feel the remnants of that on the earth. That's the radiance of the sun. Now think about this. If that's the radiance of the sun, what is the radiance of the one who created hundreds of billions of suns like? And then he says, Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Here's the point that Hebrews wants to make. Is that there have been lots of really good prophets. You could even extend that to our time. There have been lots of really good people that have come along in the years even since Jesus. Great teachers, wonderful benefactors, philanthropists, leaders. But they all fail in coming close to being compared to him. The point of the whole first chapter of Hebrews and every chapter after that is simply this. Jesus is better. And when you're looking for the standard, so what are we looking for? What is it that we have to be in order to be better? The standard The measurement is Jesus. He's better because in nature that's who he is. But he's also better because of what he did for us. I think I skipped over this verse upstairs. But look what it says in verse 4. That after making purifications for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What do you do when you finish the task for the day? When you're done with everything you've got to do for the day, what do you do? Some of you got to go to bed. Well, before that, all right, you sit down, right? Jesus accomplished his task and he sat down. Let me tell you, when I hear this, I think about my Granny Nell. Granny Nell was in her late 70s, had severe rheumatoid arthritis, and every year demanded that she cook Thanksgiving dinner for the family. And every year... From the early morning till late, this was not like microwave turkey kind of stuff, all right? This was turkey getting in, thawed out for three, four days a week, put in the oven. Some of you still do that. Put in the oven, cooked all day, dressing made from scratch, pies made from scratch, potatoes made. Well, she got them out of the ground, but from the scratch, I mean everything. And then we'd all eat. And while we're eating, Granny's not eating. Granny's like, you need some more of that? You need any more of that? Hey, we need some more of that? She's up and down. I don't know that she ever ate. And then after we eat, you got to clean. And she'd clean. And she would clean. And she would wash. And she would put in. And she didn't, it didn't go in the dishwasher on Thanksgiving. Hand washed, hand dried, put back up. And when everything was done, Granny would walk into the living room and she would plop down in her chair. And when she sat down, it meant Granny is done. Don't, grandkids, don't go in there and ask her a question. Granny's done. It says here that when Jesus accomplished the task of dying for our sins and rising again from the grave, he sat down. It is finished. And here's the reason Jesus is better. It's not just because of how great he is and how mighty he is, although that's a huge part of it. The reason Jesus is better is because he meets the deepest need 
of our lives. You see, a lot of what we try to do to get better is just covering over superficial needs that are symptoms of deeper needs. And the reason Jesus is better is not because he gives us better houses or he gives us better careers or he gives us better cars or he gives us this or he gives us that. He gives us better health or more wealth. It's not because of that. It's because he satisfies the deepest need of our lives. And we have a culture that is continually trying to satisfy their deepest needs by taking care of the surface level stuff. About a month ago, um, I decided in this quest to get better and older and trying to get everything together, I decided I was going to go get um, checked out for allergy stuff. I've been dealing with allergies for, I don't know, 40 and a half years, something like that, right? Um, I was in Texas. This is no joke. One time I was in Texas. I lived in Texas for three years. I've lived in West Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, the other part of that. And they had a brochure in the dives there just for a regular checkup about worst places to live with allergies. Number five on the list was the metropolitan area of Dallas-Fort Worth, where I was living. Number three on the list was Middle Tennessee. Number one on the list was West Tennessee. I was like, awesome. I have picked the top five places to live. And so I've suffered all my life. And so um, a few months ago, um, I had to go to an ENT to get something looked at with my ear. And while I was there, he said, you look like you've got allergy stuff. I said, I do. He said, I want you to come get that checked out. And so I went. He said, how do you deal with this? I said, I take everything I can find at Walgreens that has a generic that doesn't cost a lot. So I take Claritin, Zyrtec, Zyrtin, Allegra, whatever, whatever they call it. I take it. He said, how's that work? I said, it works for a little bit. I take the, I now take the stuff you spray up your nose every day. And he said, here's the thing. All you're doing is treating after the fact the problem. And it will never make a difference unless you deal with the underneath issues. I said, well, what do we need to do with that? He said, it probably means you're going to be on allergy shots. Doesn't that just sound fun? Like you'll get shot every week. And so he said, to do that, we need to test you. That sounds fun. How many of you have ever been allergy tested? Like testing, you know, that's fun. So we go, we're going to do it on your arms. And so they put 50 pricks on my arms. Drew little numbers, see how they are, measured them all. And then this is a, spe- this is a specialty clinic. They really go to the extra mile. Um, he said, if there are some that are borderline or words you really may be allergic to, we're going to do a second test. Oh, you're going to prick my arm again. Oh, oh, no, no, no. We're going to take an individual needle and stick it under your skin and spray that in there. And I said, you get to do 18 of those. Awesome. That's really, that's really cool. Glad about that. I said, so that just means I'm allergic to 18 things. He goes, oh, no, no, that's not what it means. They're just 18 borderline. You've got a lot more than that. Oh, awesome. That's great. So I talked to him and he, you know, we do all the tests. He comes in, he looks at my results. Um, his mom and dad uh, go to church here. He grew up in church. So we have a little conversation about church. And then he says, okay, he said, here's the deal. We do allergies on a scale to one to six. He said, in 35 allergies, you are a five or a six. That's cool. Good to know. Love to score high on tests. That's awesome. And he said, you got to do allergy shots. He said, or you'll never feel better. Now, here's the thing. For 25 years, I have been doing those daily medications to try to feel better. But I never addressed the problem underneath. And there are some of you in this room, whether you're a follower of Jesus and you've kind of walked away from the faith a little bit, or you've never given your life to Jesus, You're trying to treat all the external symptoms and you're not going to the deepest issue you have. And Jesus is better because he deals with that issue. 
That scripture says that when he had made purifications for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Better for you. What better truly is, is when you come into a right relationship with God through Jesus. There's some of you here that are followers of Christ. You've accepted salvation, but you've walked away from that. You've decided that's not for you right now. You're trying some other things. Can I just tell you, it, it may not mean more money tomorrow. It may not mean more better relationships next week, but I can guarantee you it's better. Eternally better, and even here, better. There's some of you in this room that you've never asked Jesus Christ to save you. You've never accepted the gift that he gave us in dying for us on the cross. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but you've never done that. Listen, it's not hard to do. In fact, it seems almost shockingly too easy. There's just a way that you have to come before the Lord and say to him, Dear Jesus, man, I've messed up this life on my own. I try to do things. I want to be better, and I can't. But today... I want to believe that you died for my sins, rose again from the grave, and you want to save me from them forever. It's that simple. You believe it in your heart and you trust Him with your life. And you'll be forever changed. Forever better. Would you pray with me this morning?